Oh, King Jesus, you are worthy. As we just sang, Lord, you are the only one who is worthy. There is no other name, there is no other person who is able to break the seal and open the scroll, Lord. It alone is you. And it alone is you forever and ever and ever. You're the only one that we can come together to declare this morning that is worthy, Lord. Not us, not our own works. Not any person on this earth, Lord, is worthy except for you. Lord, we declare that this morning that you alone are worthy and that everything that we do here this morning would just honor and declare that to the watching world and to one another. That as we study your word, as we sing together, as we fellowship, as we love one another, Lord, that the, the proclamation that you, Jesus, alone are worthy would just ring forth in this place. Lord, I ask that you would just speak through me and that you would just declare to me even this morning as I, as I open your word, how much more worthy you are, may I fall more in love with you, and may we fall more in love with you and see you for more worthy and more honorable and more perfect and more glorious here this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. Um, my name is Jenner Juhas, uh, and I know some of you guys, and I don't know some of you all. We've, uh, I used to attend here. We were uh, members here at Redeemer Spotsy for about a year and a half. And then now I have the opportunity and humble privilege to serve as one of the elders up at the sister church up in Stafford, so Redeemer Stafford. Uh, so about a year and a half, two years ago, we went and we planted the church up there by the grace of God. Uh, and it's such just a joy to be back here with you all this morning. Uh, it's kind of funny, we, we started attending here about three years ago, and actually that the person that brought us to this church for the first time, he's actually here today this morning for the first time in about three years as well. So it's just really cool to see how the Lord brings people back together and we can fellowship and worship our King together as one body, even though we've been apart for so many years. And I just want to say again, it's just a joy to be here with you guys. Um, me and my family, were actually moving out of the country here in about three months. And so just the opportunity to come back and see what the Lord's doing in your guys' life and to fellowship around the, the reading of his word and the teaching of his word and to sing together and to serve you guys along side by side, face to face, is just an absolute joy for us. And even though it's going to disappear, it's going to be 45 minutes here this morning. And in three months, we're going to be gone, even with here in Redeemer, Stafford. Uh, it's just a joy and just a, a remembrance for us that uh, it's not the end. We get to do this in eternity forever and ever. And it's not just, again, this morning or every Sunday morning. It's for eternity that we get to declare that Jesus Christ is worthy together as one body for all time. So I know you all have been started uh, walking through the book of Acts recently here at Redeemer Sponsi. Uh, and I was asked to, to come and help fill the pulpit since Vic's out and some other schedules. And so we're going to walk through Acts chapter 3. We're going to continue your all study of Acts. We have about 30 minutes and in a whole chapter, about 26 verses of Acts chapter 3 to get through. Uh, so please bear with me. I'm going to try and do my best to get through it. There's a lot of things I'd like to say, but just we're not going to get to all of them this morning. Um, but if you want to open your Bibles, Acts chapter 3, and go ahead and please stand with me as we honor God by reading his word. We're going to jump right into it with our time this morning. We're going to read the whole chapter aloud. Chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask of alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. 
and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, whom you decided to release to him, whom you, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of, for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets whom, who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaimed these days, and you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant of God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amen. May God read the blessing of his word. Go ahead and be seated. So chapter three comes on the heels of chapter two, obviously. And chapter two talks about Pentecost. We see Peter's first sermon in chapter 2. We see the church, the beginning of the church, and we see the early conduct of the church, how they lived with community within one another. And we also see here that Luke was inspired to just record this small narrative of Peter and John and what happened to them over a period of several days. So I think what happens here is chapter 2 ends with this, this big hyper overview of what the church looked like, that they were meeting together, they were going to the temple together, that they were listening to the apostles' sermons, they were praying together, they were doing many signs and wonders. And then we get this specific small narrative of that overview and how this looks in the life of the church here in chapter 3. And this is actually not the whole story. We'll, we'll cover chapter 3 today, but it actually continues all the way through chapter 4, as you guys will see in the coming weeks. And also, as we read, if you picked up on it, chapter 3 is broken into two pretty clear sections. I'm going to call it a miracle is the first section, and the second section is a message. So the first section we'll dive into is a miracle. It's verses 1 through 11, and it's a story about this incredible healing of a lame man outside of the temple in Jerusalem. The second section we call the message is verse 12 through 26. And this, is this is Peter's second recorded sermon in Acts, which is in response to the crowd that gathers after this miraculous healing. So we're going to take these two sections and walk through them one at a time and hopefully tie them together in the end, and you can see why I believe these two sections go together hand in hand so importantly, and they, they're back to back. So section one, the miracle. So the first 11 verses of chapter three gives us this picture of this man who's lame from birth, who's sitting outside the gate to the temple in Jerusalem. 
Now, lame isn't a word that you probably use in your daily vocabulary, but what lame means in this context is that he was unable to walk for some reason or another. He was paralyzed from the waist down in some capacity that he had no use of either his legs or his ankles or his feet. And now the fact that he was this way from birth, I think, is, is important for us to note. One, this was not anything that he had done to become lame. Some people believed back then that, you know, if you maybe got injured or if you did something, you had a sin. There were some cults and sects believed that if you sinned or did something bad, so it's kind of like karma and you, you deserved this punishment. You became lame. And there's some people who believe that here today. Not here, but in, in the world today, some people believe that as well. But I don't think that's the case at all, obviously. But in this case specifically, too, it says that he was born this way. So there was nothing he did to deserve to be lame. There was nothing he did to bring about his inability to walk. And there's nothing that he could do to fix this problem. And while we don't get much more information about this man, we also we see in chapter 4 that it does say that he was over 40 years old. So this means that this lame man from birth has never stood up, he's never taken a step, he's never walked, and he's never been able to lift himself up by his own power of his legs for over 40 years. I've been having some foot pain for the last couple of weeks to months, and even stepping out of bed and having a little pain just is so frustrating to me. You're not being able to run a little bit. I can't imagine not being able to use my legs or my feet or my ankles for over 40 years. And then lastly, he was likely never considered a contributing member of society and was likely looked down upon from the people at that time. We see in this passage that he was carried daily to this gate, which means somebody else had to walk him up the stairs to the temple and lay him next to this gate. He couldn't even get up there himself. And what he was doing is he was sitting outside the temple and he was asking for alms. Now, alms were gifts of goods or money that were given to the poor at the time, and it was one of the, the prescribed requirements of the Jews. And so he needed help to live and to support himself in any capacity whatsoever. He wasn't able to support anybody else and not even himself. And since he was over 40 years old, we say his adult life, he probably did this his entire adult life, which means 20 to 30 years, somebody else picked him up, carried him to the gate every single day, set him down, and he asked for alms. Now, can you imagine the amount of people that, that walked by him over a 20 to 30 year period at the temple in Jerusalem? The amount of people that made sneering comments or gave him an, an evil eye or didn't even give him the time of day and kind of turned their head and walked the other direction and just tried to ignore him altogether. And he was seated outside what was called the beautiful gate. So there's several gates to the temple at this time in Jerusalem. And this one was called the beautiful gate. The reason it was called beautiful is because it was adorned by a whole bunch of gold and silver. And then there's this picture of this huge gate this huge gate to the temple adorned in gold and silver. And then right outside the gate is this lame beggar who's probably poor, dirtied, been sitting on the ground for years and years. And so just imagine this juxtaposition between the gate and the lame beggar. And for him there, just can imagine the hopelessness that he's felt. This 20 to 30 years been doing this exact same thing. Maybe even the loneliness of people just continuing to pass him with their families and friends going to the temple to pray. Or even the dread of having to do this every single day of your life over and over and over. Well, Acts 2 says that many signs and wonders were done by the apostles, and awe came upon every soul, and they attended the temple together daily. So this is one instance where we see Peter and John interact with this man, but it was something that probably happened more than once. It means that Peter and John went to the temple daily, so they probably saw this man. Other apostles probably saw this man too as they went to the temple. And they had several prayers throughout the day they would go up to the temple to pray. And so this one, it says, is the ninth hour, which means it's about 3 p.m., um, so it's likely that because of that, John and Peter actually walked past this, ba- this lame beggar multiple times, maybe even multiple times that day, multiple times in the last couple of days, and we don't know how long they were there, but it's not the first time they've had this interaction. And the text, though, doesn't give us what those interactions were like. It doesn't tell us if they did give him alms, if they talked to him, if they had interactions other than this one. 
But this one, for some reason, God chose to inspire Luke to record this, this event for us. And Peter and John, I believe, were prompted differently by the Holy Spirit to act in a way that wasn't highlighted in the rest of the interactions for Luke to record. As we see in verse 4, it says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to have received something from them. So he was this lone, single, lame beggar in the crowd outside the temple who's been doing this for 20 to 30 years. And they spoke to him and said, look at us. They gave him the time of the day. They directed their gaze and their attention upon him. Now, this is a minor detail why they're talking to him, but I think it's important if you look at the whole context of the chapters of Acts we're looking at. At the end of cha- chapter 2 of Acts, it says that 3,000 were added to their numbers daily. And it says as they continue, this end, the end of chapter 2 ends with and thousands were added to their numbers. And we'll see in chapter 4 that 5,000 were added to their numbers and thousands and thousands throughout the book of Acts. But God takes the time to inspire his word to tell us the story of this one lone, lame, individual beggar outside the temple. And what that tells me is that God cares for all of us. We're just not a face in the crowd. We're just not in a number. God cares for each and every individual. He cares for you. He cares for me. He cares for our kids. He cares for every single person around the world, and he knows them by name, and he knows exactly who they are, even in the crowds. And he knows exactly what you're going through, and he knows exactly what every single person's going through. So back to the beggar. They... They talk to him, they said, fix their eyes upon us, they look at him. And you can just imagine what's going through this guy's mind. Now, someone's giving me the time of the day, they're not just dropping things in my bucket or my, my cup, and they talk to him, and he's must be thinking, hey, they're about to give me something great. They're about to give me an awesome gift. They're about to give me some gold, some silver, something to support me throughout the rest of the day. But we see what Peter says, and he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what happens when Peter does this? Well, it says that he immediately was not only able to start just wiggling his right toe and his left toe, then maybe his ankles and his legs and his progressive days, maybe weeks, improvement for this individual. And Luke does not record a slow progression, but a quick and immediate action that as soon as he said, rise up and walk, he pulled him by the hand and it says he leapt up and he was given strength in his legs and his ankles. And he was walking and standing and leaping. Remember, this man hasn't done this in over 40 years. He hasn't even stood up by his own power on his ankles in over 40 years. And here he is leaping outside the temple. There is no specific medical reason or explanation for how this happened whatsoever. It was absolutely a miracle. And what is the result of this miracle according to the text? Well, again, this lame man, after 40 years, is leaping. But the end result is he's praising God. And we see this also that the others recognize that he praised God. So verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So what was the result of this miracle? God was praised, and people were amazed. And it's absolutely incredible that God chose to use Peter and John to heal this man, and he got the glory, and people were astounded and wondered at what had happened. Now think about that for a moment, if that had happened here this morning. If someone came in here who hasn't taken a step in 40 years of their life, lame from birth, and somehow God miraculously chose to heal him here this morning, what would we probably do? We would probably praise God too. We would probably declare it was a miracle, and we would be content to call it quits after that and just be like, praise God, and let's go on from here, because the Lord had worked, and we saw a mighty miracle that the Lord had done. And I mean, why not? It was an absolute miracle. It's astounding. It would, it would blow our minds. Well, this was a miracle, and God was praised. So that's the end of it, right? We're done. The miracle, that's it. Let's, no, that's not what happens. We transition here in the second half of the chapter. And we're going to call that the message. 
Again, Peter and John could easily have stopped here. They performed the miracle. God was praised. People were astounded. A man was healed. They displayed the power of God, and God got glory. You can kind of picture it, right? They, they do this thing, and they kind of like, all right, we're done for today. Let's go back. Let's celebrate with the other apostles. Let's declare what the Lord has done, and this is an amazing day. But instead, Luke recorded that the crowd, the crowd began to go around Peter and John and the lame man outside the temple. Now, I think these two back-to-back, -back, I think this part's extremely important because Peter and John had decisions to make here. Did they leave and go back to the other apostles? Did they stay there amongst the crowd? Did they say something? Did they open their mouth and talk about what had just happened? Did they maybe explain it in a way that kind of pacifies the crowd, that really doesn't give glory to God, and kind of just, yeah, this is, this is cool. God, God did his work, and some medical things happened, and he's healed now. Or do they themselves, the crowds going around them, astonished what happened? Do they accept the praise of man and say, we did this by our power. This is something that we had accomplished. The Lord gave us the power, and we did this. I think we're faced with these kind of choices every single day in school for kids, in our work as adults, the interactions we have with people on the street and in the stores, even with our kids at home. Well, Peter, no doubt prompted by the Holy Spirit, chose to stay and address the crowd. And he calls them to repentance with truth and grace in a way that only God gets even more glory. The second sermon by Peter is recorded here in Acts chapter 3. It's not as long as the one that was recorded in Acts chapter 2, his first sermon. And it doesn't have the same quite style where in Acts chapter 1, Peter used long quotations from the Old Testament. Here he alludes to the Old Testament a whole bunch, but it's more kind of the condensed Cliff Note version used with the use of his language. We don't have time to go into those today. I wish we could, but I would just encourage you to go look those up for yourself. But one thing I do think this has, this message that Peter spoke here, then in Acts chapter 2, and then what you'll see throughout Acts, then even for us today, there's elements of how we share the gospel, the elements of the message that we have for people today. And so we're going to walk through those. First, the first one I want to highlight is that the center of Peter's words are Christ and the risen Christ specifically. It's extremely evident from this passage, in this passage, that Christ is the center of what Peter and John did in their entire lives. If you read the passage, there's 14 verses in the second half, and Peter makes four, over 20 references to Christ in just these 14 verses. 20 references in 14 verses to Christ. And depending on how you break it up, it could be between 18, 22, and, just, and maybe what translation you use, but over or nearly 20 references to Christ. But if you look back how many references he made to himself and John or this lame beggar, he makes only five references. And actually, the majority of those are pointing themselves, or pointing the glory away from them and pointing it back to Christ. You can see that in verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by your own power or piety we have made him walk? In other words, he said, we had nothing to do with this. There is no human ability in us or good works or self-righteousness in us or the lame beggar that could have done this. Don't even begin to think this was something that we did on our own. It's absolutely crystal clear to his listeners and even for us as readers today that Christ is central and Christ is alive. He is central in all things, but specifically, Peter points out, he was central in this healing of the man. In verse 16, he says, And his name, Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is strong, Jesus, in the faith that is through Jesus, has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. This was the work of the living and risen Christ in him alone and no one else. It's important to note that the emphasis is on the risen and living Christ. Because they could have performed this miracle, they could have given credit to anybody else. But if you go back, we'll kind of jump ahead a little bit to Acts chapter 4. After this scene, Peter and John are actually arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin and they're put on trial. And the accusations that it says early in chapter 4 that they're brought against is not because they performed a healing, not because they brought a crowd. It's because they proclaimed the resurrection of the dead. 
They were arrested and eventually put on trial because they proclaimed that Jesus Christ was alive. It's absolutely offensive to the world. When you proclaim the gospel, we need to proclaim the risen Christ. Secondly, Peter has the boldness to expose the sin of his listeners. The vast majority of the people I believe around this crowd are the Jews at the time because they went into the temple and those were astonished as he's leaping and jumping in the, in the temple. And this is who Peter appeals to with his Old Testament references. But even though he knows this is his crowd, that's who he's appealing to, he also openly tells them that they were the ones who denied, hated, murdered the promised Messiah of God. Verse 13, his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. These statements are absolutely astounding to the Jewish crowd. The Jews have been waiting for their Messiah for over for thousands of years at this point. And so much of what they did, they centered their life around waiting for the coming Messiah. And Peter tells them not only that they missed the coming Messiah, but they're the ones responsible for the death of the Messiah that's already come. And included in that, none does he say that you denied him, you hated him, you, you murdered him. They said, he, Peter tells them that you actually wanted a murderer, a convicted murderer to be taken out of jail in place of the holy and righteous one of God. He exposes their hearts and their sin. Church, when we share the gospel, we can't just tell them the good news. They have to know what they're being saved from. We have to expose the bad news. There's no good news without the bad news. The third characteristic of Peter's message was that he defined both the consequences and blessings associated with denying or accepting Christ as the promised Messiah. In the midst of Peter's explanation of how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament uh, as the last prophet after Moses, he includes, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now this is a reference, I believe, to eternal damnation associated with the rejection of Christ as Savior and Lord. Peter says here that hell is real, and you will be destroyed for all eternity. And he does not just shy away from it at all. But on the other side, he also explains that those who do accept Christ as Lord and Savior and put their faith in him and believe that Jesus was the promised and waited Messiah will experience the forgiveness of sins. A time of refreshing will come in the presence of the Lord. And you will spend eternity with Christ when he restores all things to himself in the second coming. So not only is hell real, but even more so heaven is real. And it will be refreshing in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. Now, the last characteristic I think is the most important one as we share the gospel. And I think it's one that we tend to forget a lot. Peter not only declares that Christ is the risen and living Christ, he not only exposes the sin of his listeners, and he not only tells them of the, the damnation of hell and the blessing of heaven. I think most of us are pretty, pretty good about this, of pointing people's sins out, of telling them that Jesus is alive, and then also even saying that we believe that there's a heaven and a hell. But in the midst of this, Peter does something else. He displays the grace of God and calls these people to repentance and to put their faith and trust in Christ. He does not leave them to question or wonder what they should do or how they should figure this out or they should go to another religion or another person in the government or somebody else to figure out how they can be saved from their sins. He gives them exactly what they need to do to respond to Christ. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back. And in verse 26, he says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Regardless of what they've done, regardless of their denial of Christ, their hatred of him, even the responsibility of the murder of the, risen, of the, the king of the universe, Peter offers them repentance in Christ. 
I was trying to equate this in our mind to put it in a perspective that we can understand. And today's September 10th, which means tomorrow's the anniversary of September 11th with the, the attack in the United States. And so I, I tried to put this in, in a way that I would understand of offering grace to someone that we would think is undeserving. And so put, go, take us back to 2001, September 11th attack from Osama bin Laden and the other terrorist organization, a part of him as well. And what if two weeks later, our government reaches out to Osama bin Laden and his, his crew and says, hey, we need you guys. You guys can come back to New, York, to New York City. And not only that, we'll actually give you a penthouse in New York City. And not only that, we'll pay for it. And you guys can live there rent-free. And we'll give you all the things you need for the rest of your life. Oh, and not only that, we're going to give you citizen in the United States. Oh, and then we'll give you a position within the government. Like in our minds, that's absolutely unfathomable for the things that those people did back 22 years ago. Especially for a lot of us here that have been in federal employment or, have, or still work in federal employment. But Peter offers the Jewish crowds the ability to turn from their ways and turn to Christ no matter what they've done, even as the ones who murdered King Jesus. I think this step is absolutely essential in us sharing the gospel. That not only we expose sin, not only we declare the risen Christ, not only we show people that there is a heaven and hell, but we call them to repentance and proclaim to them that they can have grace and they can have refreshment in Christ Jesus. So we see a miracle, the first half of this passage, and we see a message, the second half of this passage. Now, what do we do with these two things? They're kind of seemingly opposite. We have a, a miracle and a message. How do these two things go together? How does this have practical implications for our lives here today in, in 2023 in Spotsylvania? Well, let's start with the miracle. You might be thinking, Jenna, are you telling us to leave this place, go find a lame beggar on the side of the road, grab him by the hand and pull him up and hope that God heals him? Or are you telling us just to go in the streets and perform miracles and healings and signs and wonders like the apostles were doing in Acts? Well, first I want to say that we do believe that God heals people and that he can do anything he chooses if it's his will. And he can do it absolutely immediately whenever he so chooses. But I don't think that's what this passage is telling us to do. And I don't think that's what I'm trying to tell you here this morning either. But one thing I do think that God makes absolutely perfectly clear for us in his word, for us this morning today, is that as Christians, we're called to serve those in need around us. We're called to take care of those who are despised, who are looked down upon, who are lonely, who have been left in their sin for their entire life, and who look like they have absolutely no hope whatsoever. And we're called to love on them in physical, in tangible ways in the society, in the, the communities the Lord has us in. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Matthew 25, 38 through 40 goes on to say that anytime you do anything for anything you do good for the least of these, for those who are in need, someone who's looked down upon, despised, you've done it in the name of Jesus Christ and you've done it to Christ as well. And we could spend the rest of the time here, actually the rest of the day, pointing to scripture passages to talk about what we're supposed to do as Christians and how we're supposed to love on those around us. But as believers in Christ, we absolutely do not have the option to walk past those in need. We don't have the option to look the other way and continue to keep walking. The book of James makes this perfectly clear to us that faith without works is dead. And Jesus even said that he did not come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here's a simple example that I was thinking of. And someone kind of told me a little bit about this the last, uh, last service, so I'll, I'll put it in a different context. Um, but how many of you have driven down Highway 3 going toward 95, and you got Costco and the mall on the right-hand side, and you got... Uh, Central Park on the left-hand side, and there's stoplights, and people are there asking for money, asking you to give them things. Or you walk into somewhere downtown D.C., you're getting off the metro, and someone's asking for a couple dollars. What's your typical response? Keep your hands on the wheel, 
Keep your eyes straight ahead. Pretend like you're waiting on the light to turn so you don't have to acknowledge that person in need next to you. You keep walking past. You keep, for me, I, as I take the metro to DC, you know, keep your headphones in. And like, oh, maybe they won't notice. I won't notice he's there. Somebody else is talking to him. I'm busy. I can't, I, I don't have time to talk to this person. I have to get to class. And then we go and we drive past that person at the stoplight and we turn into Costco and we don't give them a dollar or two and we spend three, four, five hundred dollars on things that we don't need. That picture of someone in absolute need with the opulence of the beautiful gate of gold and silver, I think many of us could say we live in that type of situation here in Northern Virginia. But I will say, though, this is not just a pointing of fingers, not just a damnation against us here this morning. Redeemer Bible Church here in Spotsy and in Stafford, it's absolutely encouraging to see how many people here live out this practical application in their daily lives. They take care of the people in need. They give their time, their effort, their resources, their money to love on those in physical, intangible ways. One of the ways that we do here in our church, as we made absolutely apparent, is the orphan care ministry through adoption and foster care through loving on those little babies and kids and even teenagers that feel hopeless, they feel alone, they feel like they've been abandoned. As Benjamin talked about baby Mila, that was, she was through the foster care system and now she's loved by the carpenters and just to see that beautiful giving of your time and your efforts. It's so amazing to see in church, it's just an encouragement because it's exactly what we're called to do as the body of Christ. But that brings us to the message part of this. We can absolutely give every moment of our day to care for the homeless. We can feed the poor, we can care for orphans, we can care for widows, we can spend our times even living on foreign soil to bring clean water and medical care to people that we've never even met or never even heard of in villages that no one else know exist. And we can even spend the rest of our lives saving young girls from slavery around the world. We see people do this kind of all the time with big philanthropists and giving to their money, even millions and billions of dollars to do these, what we would call apparent miracles around the world. And they write news articles about and people get tax breaks on and all these things. And Peter here, we saw him perform a miracle. He healed this man who was lame from birth and it was absolutely a true miracle. But I'm gonna tell you, and I think the text tells us here today, but if, if that's all we do, if all of our actions and deeds are done without proclaiming who the risen Christ is, without exposing sin, without declaring the goodness of heaven and the reality of hell, and calling people to repentance and the grace of Christ, all of our good deeds, all those efforts, all those money, all that billions of dollars are absolutely worthless. It's wasted and it's only temporary. You see, the message did not serve the miracle in this story when these two passages, but rather the miracle served to make an opportunity for the message to be proclaimed. The miracle, the healing of this man was not the goal. The goal was that the proclamation of the gospel would go out to this crowd. Has anybody ever heard the phrase, um, actions speak louder than words? Yeah, I think everyone here has probably heard that some, sometime or another in your relationships, at school, with your parents. Well, actions do display love and they do display care. Those are good things. We see this in a marriage between a husband and a wife and kids when they obey their parents. But I'm gonna tell you today that actions do not make known the mysteries of God and they do not proclaim the risen Christ and they do not call people to repentance in and of themselves. Romans 10, 14 through 17 says, how then will they call on him who have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When I was in youth ministry in high school back in Kentucky, so many years ago, there was a, a statement we used to say, and we had t-shirts made, it said, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. 
it looked cool for a youth ministry. You had a catchy sound. You could put on a t-shirt, wear it to school, and, you know, you kind of put the check in the box that I'm being a Christian. But looking back on that statement today, in light of this passage, that statement was absolutely unbiblical. It actually wasn't encouraging us to preach the gospel. It was actually a discouragement for us to proclaim the good news of Christ and to make an excuse to not open our mouths. What it should have said is something more like preach the gospel in word and deed together at all times. Loving through sacrificial service in the verbal proclamation of who Christ is and exposing sin and calling people to repentance is the purpose of the church, as you saw in Acts chapter 2 and we'll see throughout the, rest of chap- uh, throughout the book of Acts. There is not one without the other. This miracle that we see here with Peter is absolutely a miracle. There's no denying it. But this miracle was still only temporary. The healing of this man was only temporary. He could leap, he could jump, he could run, he could walk. But eventually he was going to die. And his ability to use his legs or his ability not to use his legs had no change in his status of entering heaven or hell for all eternity. A story right now is our church is Redeemer Spotsy and Redeemer Stafford. We have a 12-person team right now of, uh, made up of teenagers and adults who are in uh, Chiquimula, Guatemala. They're down there right now for about a week um, left over. I got several messages from photos from them last night, uh, and they're just pictures of them just bringing food and resources to these people up in the mountains in utter poverty and in the jungles. Some of them don't even know where their next meal is going to come from. Some of the pictures they sent me were of, our, of a, the teenage girls from your church and our church up there just holding little babies and caring for these babies in, in dirt huts, in mud huts, sitting on the ground with little you know, six-month-old, one-year-old babies and caring for them. And this is absolutely incredible. You think about that. A teenage girl skips school, skips their sports practices, skips time with their friends to go see a people thousands of miles away they've never met in the mountains of Guatemala where they could get sick and hurt and hike up these mountains in the heat to just love on these little babies and care for them. It's, it's eye-watering, honestly, to think about that girls would do that. But if that's still all they did, it's absolutely worthless in eternity. But I also received messages that they were sharing the gospel with these people, that they take the time to hold these babies and they proclaim the goodness of Christ. They proclaim that Jesus Christ is alive and he cares for them. So their deeds and these miracles of love, of caring for these little babies, it served the message that Jesus Christ is alive and that they could have repentance and refreshing in Christ for all eternity. They're not just doing the one without the other, they're doing both. In church, this is our call as the body of Christ. So with this in mind, I want to do one more thing for us before we wrap up as we come to an end. I want us to take a look back at the characters of the story in Acts chapter 3. We have the lame man from birth. He was in the same situation his whole life. He was born this way. He'd been there for over 40 years. He didn't create the problem. He had no way of fixing this problem. These pains and struggles were real, and he was, no, he was not getting out of them. He was looked down upon. He was despised. People walked by him. They ignored him. They made fun of him. He was dirty. He was lonely, and he was utterly without hope. What about the crowds that Peter spoke to? These are the ones that denied, hated, despised, and murdered Jesus. They wanted, they wanted and not only that, but more than Jesus, they actually asked again for a murder to be let out and to Jesus be, to be killed. From a worldly perspective, if you look back on that, those are the last people that, should, that deserve to be offered the grace of Christ. Now, does this sound like anyone you might know? Does this sound like any of you this morning? Where you feel lonely, feel dirty, you feel without hope, you feel like you're, you're there by yourself, you're despised, you're looked down upon, people see you as broken, people see you as unusable, unhelpful, covered in sin, 
Or do you feel like you're the, the crowd that Peter's talking to where you, you've done so many bad things in your life or you've done X amount of sins or specific sins that you don't think you deserve the grace of Christ? Well, I'm here to tell you that's all of us or it has been all of us. Ephesians 2 says that we were all dead in our trespasses apart from Christ. We were all lonely. We're all despised. We're all marred by sin. And we're all without hope of fixing the sin problem in our lives from birth for all eternity. And we're all just as evil and undeserving of the grace of God as those who actually murdered the author of life 2,000 years ago. And this is not a temporary ailment or a temporary struggle that ends with death. This is a problem. This sin problem is a lasting, has lasting effects for all eternity. And so if that's you this morning or maybe a family member or someone you think of, we want you to know that, that Jesus is alive and he takes great joy in performing miracles in healing this type of person every single time. And it's not a temporal fix. It's not one that you can just, that ends in a couple years or ends in death, but it's for all eternity. The, author of, the offer of healing from sin, restoration, relationship with God, refreshment, and repentance of sin is available today for you and for those people. And just like the lame beggar outside, though, this healing and restoration is absolutely immediate. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, it doesn't take time. It's not two weeks. It's not a month. You don't have to do so many penances. You don't have to perform so many acts. You don't have to do so many good deeds. Once you put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord, your spirit will also be leaping for joy and praising God to you this morning for the rest of eternity. So while we read about this miracle that astounded the people, the message here, I believe, is actually the greatest miracle. That sinful man can be made holy and put into a right relationship with the king of the universe without any effort or strength of their own. So as we head into a time of remembrance, Mike's going to come up and lead us in communion this morning. I want us to take time. If, if you relate to the lame beggar or you relate to the crowd, I want you to contemplate the death, burial, and resurrection of the risen King Jesus that you too can have refreshment this morning. And I don't want anybody here to leave this morning without talking to one of the elders here at Redeemer Spotsy or me or another brother or sister here to know how you can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins and have that time of refreshing and be healed for all of eternity. But if not, also, if, you, if you've already put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this should be a time of encouragement as we take communion to remember and to, to think back on what Christ has done. And we can celebrate and we can praise in our bodies and our spirits. We can leap for joy and praise God this morning, knowing that he's already done the work for us, that we don't have to do any more work, that he's done it for us, that we can have that hope, we can have that faith, and we can have that perfect righteousness given only by Christ in our lives for all of eternity. So put your faith in Christ if you have not. And if you have, take joy this morning and praise God for what he's done in your lives. Would you please play with me? Lord God, we praise you that you, first and foremost, are alive, as we sing about already. You are the risen king. The death, the murder, the burial, 2,000 years ago cannot hold you down. And Lord, we praise you this morning that even though I'm undeserving, even though every single person here is undeserving of your grace and your love, you offer it freely, that you've given of your son for us to come into a right relationship with you by no merit of our own, by no strength of our own. 
And not only that, but we can have hope. We can have joy. We can leap and we can praise today because of what you've done in our lives. And Lord, if there's anybody here who has not done that yet, Lord, I just pray that you would, you would just let them know that you see them, just like Peter and John saw the lame beggar. They're not lost in the crowd, Lord, that you see every single person. You know the struggles. You know the addictions. You know the sins. You see them where they are. And you love them and care for them and you want to see them made into a right relationship with you. And so I ask if they're here that you would put, that you would just allow them to put their faith and trust in you. Give them the strength that they don't have on their own to trust and love you. And Lord, also as we just come and we, we read about healing, I just want to lift up baby Milo again to you. Lord, that you would just, again, we know that you have the power to heal any ailment. You know every single drop of blood. You know every single cell, every single atom that is in Milo's body. You know exactly what's going on. And so, Lord, we pray that you would heal her. The doctors would be astounded and amazed at what you've done in her life, even today, even this hour as we pray. And that when the opportunity comes that Vic and his family, they can just proclaim this message that you are good and you are alive and there's repentance and grace in you and only in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.